0: Last week, we started Romans chapter 1, we got through verse 1, uh, surprisingly, and into verse 2, the first half of verse 2. So what we're going to do tonight is, y'all aren't going to believe me when I tell you this, we're going to go from verse 2 to verse 7 tonight, finish up the first seven verses, so the outline that you have is uh, the second part of this. We're going to be looking, again, the one true gospel, uh, I spoke to you before about How even in in evangelical circles, many people aren't clear in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, it's not being preached. Number two, it's not being taught in settings like this very accurately, in my opinion. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Word of God, and He is going to, by His Spirit, teach us and continue to teach us the things that He wants us to see. So let's pray and let's get started. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. Thank you for each and every man that's here. God, I pray as they seek you and they seek your will as believers, uh, as they seek your word and the truths that are contained in it, Lord, that you would um, just move them and grow them to the place that you desire for them to be, that you would use them in a mighty way. Lord, we give you praise for what you're going to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all, yeah, Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> if you don't have one, there's a little skeleton outlines there that you can take, take your notes there and kind of help you follow along and stay with me. I'm going to try to get you out of here in an hour. So Romans chapter 1, we saw last week as we looked at the first verse and part of the second verse, we saw the gospel proclaimer and we talked to you about Paul, who he was, how God sovereignly chose him, um, how he set him apart as the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, In preaching the gospel, we saw not only the gospel proclaimer, Paul, we saw the gospel point. That gospel point was the good news. Anybody remember that Greek word? Good news, what was it? Euangelion. That compound word means good tidings, good message, good news. Uh, We talked about the gospel point, which was to give good news and how God brought good news to sinners and good news to those of us who were under his wrath. We saw the gospel provider, which Paul said in Romans when we started, the gospel of God. This gospel originated with God. This wasn't something that man thought up or Paul himself thought up, but it is the gospel of God. And then we saw and closed with the gospel precisely the fact that it is the gospel, not a gospel. Um, It is the truth, the only gospel that reconciles men unto God. And we pick up in verse 2 tonight. We see that it said there at the first part of of verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, we're going to see some things in this passage here in these next Five verses, we're going to see some things concerning the gospel as well as the things that we looked at last week. I'll give them to you in order. You got them there on your paper. We're going to see the gospel prophesied, the gospel personified, the gospel produces, the gospel people, and the gospel position. Let's look at the first one the gospel prophesied. Paul says here in the second verse, he says, The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel that he promised beforehand. I want you to understand something. That this wasn't anything new uh, that Paul had discovered. This is what Scripture had proclaimed forever. And Paul is letting the church know that this is the same gospel of the Old Testament. Many times we get that wrong. We don't realize that this was the gospel that the prophets spoke of beforehand. The gospel that was promised in the past. That's what beforehand means. The gospel that the prophets proclaimed the gospel that the Scriptures confirmed. He said it was the gospel uh, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we see that it was promised in the past by the prophets in the Scripture. This wasn't a new gospel. It was the gospel of old, the foretold gospel and the fulfilled gospel and finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we know, came to finish that work. It is the gospel of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, And ultimately, his return. And all of these things have been prophesied and have been fulfilled or will be fulfilled by the prophets when they were spoken of. They will be fulfilled before the end or at the end. But they were spoken of by the prophets even thousands of years before Christ even came to this earth and thousands of years before Paul even wrote this. And he's saying this is the same gospel. And so when we talk about the gospel, I want you to understand It's not going to deviate from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The gospel is going to remain true unto itself. What I mean by that is this gospel that we see that we as believers were chosen in Christ to receive and to be saved through. We know this. This is the gospel of God, which we talked about last week, that he declared through the prophets and through the scriptures of old. I'm going to run through these things with you. If you're taking notes, get your pencil or your pen ready. This beforehand talk that Paul is using is in reference to the types that we see in the Old Testament. There are types of Christ, and then there are open and bold prophecies concerning Christ. I'm going to give you some types, and you write these down. Uh, We see that Adam is a type of Christ that we see in Genesis because both of their actions affected a great many people. Adam, through his sin, the world was affected by his sin, and Christ, through his righteousness, he affected the many who will believe. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 talks of this account of Adam. And then Romans five fourteen that type is fulfilled in Christ. And Paul gives us that information. The next type that we see is Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Many of you have looked in the Old Testament and you have studied in Exodus chapter 12 about the Passover and all that that consisted of. That specific lamb that was there as a sacrifice of atonement to protect the firstborn in the homes of the Israelites, we know this, that Jesus was the fulfilled type, or or the Passover was the the type that Jesus fulfilled that we see in John chapter 1, 29 through 36. And we also see this not only in John, we see that in many uh, references in the New Testament that speak of Christ as that Passover lamb. The next type, we see a type that we oftentimes look over, uh, the rock that produced water for Israel—we didn't realize this when we were reading through um, Exodus—that that rock was a picture of that living water, even way back then. And Jesus then fulfills that type for us in John chapter four, verse ten. We see that it's referred to again in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verse three and four. The next type that we see was the tabernacle. We remember that God gave Moses specific instructions about this tabernacle, and that tabernacle was a place where God dwelt among the Israelites, and He dwelt there as a type. Of Christ, uh, showing them that God's desire is to dwell with them, and wanting their desire to be to dwell with Him. Exodus twenty-five eight, Isaiah seven fourteen, Isaiah eight eight, and then we see this that the fulfillment of that um, type was referred to in Matthew chapter 1, 21 and twenty-three, John one fourteen, and John fourteen eight through eleven. And then we see the next type that we see in the Old Testament. We see the feast. Um, and that feast of the unleavened bread, and um, that unleavened bread representing the purity of Jesus. God instructed the people to make this bread, but did not let leaven be present in any way, shape, or form in this, in this bread, representing that purity. Jesus' burial uh, being like a kernel in the ground waiting to burst forth in life. So we see the unleavened bread and then the burial of Jesus, that seed. Um, Leviticus 23.6 talks of this, 1 Peter chapter 2. Speaks of, in verse 22, the fulfillment. Then we see the next type. Um, that was the feast of the first fruits. Represents Jesus as being the first one resurrected from the dead. Uh, we see Leviticus 23.10 talks about first fruits. And then Jesus is referred to as that firstborn. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. We could go on and on and on about the types. There are many. Um, we know that there were, there were those... Um, who in Moses' day would have looked to a snake that was on a pole and they would have been healed by that. They looked up. um, Jesus in the same manner was lifted up on a cross and that serpent on that pole was a type of Christ, a healer, uh, just as Jesus was lifted up on his cross, according to John chapter 3. You see the account of the serpent on the pole in Numbers 21, 8 through 9. John chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, you see Christ fulfilling that. We know this that uh, in the book of Ruth, um, Boaz was a type of Christ. He was the kinsman redeemer. We see that fulfilled in Jesus. Galatians three thirteen, Galatians four verse five, Colossians one fourteen. We can go on and on about these types. Uh, Jonah, um, Jonah who was in the belly of the fish three days. Jesus' body being in the grave three days, representing Redemption and new life, um, we could go on. But let's move to the prophecies. You get the idea of the typology. And let me just tell you this. That's not an all-inclusive list. That's just some that I knew you might be familiar with. Moving into prophecy, um, there are many, many, many prophecies about Jesus Christ. In fact, hundreds even. Um, many historians and theologians have tried to figure exactly how many um, that the Scriptures refer to as prophecies of Christ or prophecies pointing to, towards something in Christ's life. Those numbers vary um, based on interpretation, uh, but as many, uh, one scholar, uh, Barton Payne, uh, he has claimed as many as 574 verses uh, in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. It's pretty impressive. Um, also, there was a scholar by the name of um, Alfred Edersham, and Alfred Edersham, he found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or to the times of the Messiah. But conservatively, we can say this, um, that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies uh, that were proclaimed in the, in the Old Testament, and he fulfilled these uh, many of them in just three and a half years of earthly ministry while he was here on the earth. And that's pretty impressive. Um, and, and many of those in the 33 some odd years that he was here on the earth. But let's, let's look at those. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, uh, we see that way back then in Genesis chapter 3, just following the fall of man, the serpent and the seed of Eve will have conflict. Uh, boy, haven't we? Um, the offspring of that woman will crush the serpent. Jesus is that seed, uh, and He will crush and did crush Satan there at the cross. Genesis three, uh, then fulfilled in Galatians four four, Hebrews chapter two fourteen, both reference this fulfillment. God promised Abraham the uh, the, the whole world that the whole world would be blessed through Him. Uh, Jesus descended from Abraham, and that is the blessing that. God was speaking of when He made that promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, and then in Matthew 1, 1 through 2, we see that that was fulfilled or spoken of in the New Testament. God promised Isaac um, that the whole world would be blessed by His descendants, and guess what? Jesus is also a descendant that came from Isaac, and and we know that Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 1, again, as we said before, but also in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, 1 of Luke is 33 and 3 of Luke is 23 and 24. Um, Jacob prophesied Judah would rule over his brothers. Interesting thing about that is Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who will forever rule over his brothers. Pretty interesting, isn't that, that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 is where we see Jacob prophesying that Judah would rule over his brothers. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 2, confirms that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33, both in the lineages of Christ, confirm this. Uh, the Jews were not to keep uh, the Passover lamb overnight. Jesus was buried uh, the day that he died. And so they didn't keep that lamb overnight. It was a specific reason for that. Exodus 12 and verse 10. And then John chapter 19, 38, we see that Jesus. It fulfills that uh, when um, he, uh, excuse me, 938-42, when he was buried uh, the same day that he died. And you remember when you go back to that account, it was a, they were in a hurry. They had to bury him. That was not usually the case. Usually in the case of a Roman crucifixion, they had to leave him hanging for a while so that everybody could take note and not mess with the Romans. But For the case of Jesus, they were in a hurry because it was to fulfill things that the Old Testament had confirmed. We, could, we can move through. There are hundreds of these. Moses was uh, promised by God. um, I mean, Moses uh, promised God would atone for His people, and that was confirmed there to Moses that He would do that. Um, Jesus' sacrifice is that atonement. So God promised Moses that there would be an atonement for the people, Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, verse forty-three. And then we know this that Jesus was that atonement. We're going to see that a lot in Romans, especially in Romans chapter three, verse twenty-five. But we also see it in Hebrews chapter two, seventeen. Again, this is not all inclusive list. There are many scriptures that refer to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, we can go through these for days, for hours, for months, for years. Um, these are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies that Jesus um, that were made of about Jesus in the Old Testament and that Jesus fulfilled in his life here on this earth or that he will fulfill at his second coming. So you probably know of many more. Our, our time together tonight is not to discuss how many prophecies of the Messiah that we know, but to know this, that when Paul says that this was the gospel uh, that was preached beforehand, he is talking about the fact of there were hundreds of references that he knew as a Hebrew growing up. I talked to you last week about the importance of Paul who grew up as a Hebrew trained in to know these things, and he knew, and, and when God opened his eyes, it all made sense that those prophecies and those types that he had learned as a young boy and even as a young man, that those things all pointed to Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. So that first verse, and looking at that, says that important word beforehand, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Scripture confirms for us. People ask all the time, well, why do you believe in the Old Testament? I believe in the Old Testament because it confirms everything that happened in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah that the prophets spoke of. Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the Scriptures spoke of. Jesus Christ is the, the, the fulfillment of all the types and all the pictorial things that were, were outlined for us in the Old Testament. So we see it was the gospel prophesied. So when you come to Christ by hearing the message of the gospel, when I preach the gospel every week, this is no new message. This is the same gospel that was promised beforehand. Therefore, we are going to see consistency if we look at the gospel in its entirety um, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I'll promise you this. If you study the scripture long enough, you will see that there is in every Every single one of the 66 books that were canonized, there is in every single one of them that red line that runs all the way through the Scriptures pointing us to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, we move to the second part of this, getting to the next verse, verse 3. It says this, it says in verse 3, Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we look at this, we saw first the gospel prophesied, that it was the gospel that was preached beforehand by the prophets and through the Old Testament scriptures and types there that we find. We also see that the gospel personified itself, meaning this, it was no longer about types and prophecies. Jesus Christ came to this earth as the true Messiah. And he came in an interesting way. And I love that Paul, in, the, in these two verses that we just read, outlines that for us. We see that um, Jesus, he refers to him first in verse 4, and who through the, oh, excuse me, verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his human nature. So he's going to divide two things. He's going to divide the human nature of Christ. Then he's going to also Divide and let us see the divine nature of Christ and who through the spirit, verse 4, of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we see the gospel personified, the gospel personified, we see that Matthew Henry, uh, many of you have heard of Matthew Henry's commentaries. They're very old, um, but they're still very relevant in studying the scripture. Matthew Henry said this, by the light of nature, we see God as a God above us. By the light of the law, we see him as a God against us, right? When we see the law, we can never do it right. But by the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us. And what a profound statement. Isn't that true uh, that we see, if we look around in nature, we see God as a God above, that he's huge and so far out of our reach that we couldn't possibly ever um, entertain even the thought of being in his presence. And then the law, we see that he's against us because we have all sinned and broken those laws and become transgressors, transgressors. But in the light of the gospel, we see him as God coming down, Emmanuel, God with us. And we know this, that Jesus was referred to as Emmanuel, God with us, and the one who would rescue us from our sin. When Jesus came to this earth, I want you to understand something. He was fully God. And he was fully man. He was the sovereign Lord come to this earth in flesh. So when we see his human side, we know this that the Bible refers to that human side of Jesus as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. When we look at that term, the Son of Man, I want you to understand its origin. The origin of the term Son of Man, write this down, very important scripture and understanding this. Daniel chapter seven verses 13 and 14, we see the origin of the Son of Man. And and Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we see when we see the term son of man, because Jesus actually referred to himself as the son of man. When we see that term in the New Testament, and I'll tell you this, there are many references and we're going to look at a lot of them tonight uh, that reference the son of man. And many times when you see that it's Jesus referencing himself. Uh, But we see that the description of the Son of Man from Daniel was a messianic title. Messianic title meaning that it was pointing to the Christ. I don't know about you, but when you read that in Daniel, we know because we've already seen it happen, and we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and know that we're going to see it to its full fulfillment according to Scripture. But you knew when we read that 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 was talking about Christ. That wasn't just talking about some angelic being or some. Uh, strange paranormal activity, but it was talking to the one who had authority and about the one who had authority and glory and sovereign power over all peoples and nations and whose kingdom would never, ever pass away. That's Jesus Christ, in case you missed that. So this term, the Son of Man, was a messianic title, um, and he, when Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man, was assigning to himself the title of Messiah, understand that. When he referred to himself as the son of man, every Jewish person under his his voice would know that he was saying that he was the Messiah. Now, understand something. The Jewish people understood that the Messiah would be a human being. In fact, it, it, it really didn't enter into their mind the second part that we're going to talk about tonight, that not only was he the son of of man, but he was also the son of God, that he was deity. In fact, he was God in flesh, revealing himself to man as the son Jesus Christ. It never entered their mind. In fact, they were blinded to it to a degree and still are to this day to some degree. And so when we talk about the son of man, uh, we see that uh, the Jews of Jesus' era would have known explicitly who Jesus was talking about. They knew that he was referencing himself to be the one that Daniel and many of the other prophets pointed to. And so we see in the, the New Testament, we see many references to the Son of Man in the New Testament. And in every one of those, we see that it is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll look at those in a second. But before we do, I want you to understand a second meaning of Son of Man is very important to understand as we look at this title, Uh, because a son of man meant exactly that, a man. I want you to understand and never forget that Jesus was fully man, although he was fully God. That's why it's important to see over and over again that there were references to the son of man alongside of, and even some scriptures contain them both in the same passage of scripture, the son of man, and then point to him as the son of God. And so we get to see both elements of truth there. So when we look at that, it's very important that we see that Jesus was flesh, that he came to this earth and it wasn't some, some type of, of euphoric being that was here. Uh, when Jesus had nails driven in his hands and in his ankle bones and he had his flesh ripped from him, it hurt. He bled. He We, we know this. We have scripture that confirms he mourned with people. He even wept. He was disappointed in people's lacks of faith. He had humanity. So don't forget that. Uh, He didn't didn't come here uh, again in some hologram form um, just to save the world. He came as a human because it was according to God's plan. Also, it was according to God's prophecy. The Jews were expecting the Son of Man. They were expecting a human to be their king. Right? Because they had always, since they begged for a king way back in the times of Saul, they had always had human kings. And they believed this, that when Daniel prophesied about this son of man, that it was going to be a human king. And he was. But he's oh so much more than that. We'll talk about that in a second. And he will be their Messiah who will reign forever, just as Daniel said. So the son of man references, if you have your pen, right fast. Matthew 8.20, Matthew 9.6. Matthew 10:23, Matthew 11, 19. Matthew 12:8, Matthew 12:32, Matthew 12:40, Matthew 13:37, Matthew 13:41, Matthew 16, 13. 16, 27. 16, 28. 17, 9. 17 12. 17, 19, 28. 2018. We're still in Matthew. Keep writing. 20:28, 20, 28. 24, 27. Huh? Can y'all keep up? 24:30 24:37 24:39 yeah Matthew says it a lot 24:44 25:31 Matthew six two, Matthew 26:24 Matthew 26:45 Matthew 26:64 Hey good news we're moving to Mark Mark 2:10 2:28 8:31 8.38, 9.9, 9, 9.12, 9.31, 10.33. Feel like we're playing bingo. 10.45, Mark 13.26, Mark 14.21, Mark 14.41, Mark 14.62, Luke 5.24, Luke five. 24, Luke 6.22, Luke, 6, Luke 7.34. Yeah, like Tommy said. The whole New Testament, at least the Gospels so far, right? So in the Gospels, and we can go on and on and on, we would get, finish Luke in about probably 15 or 20 more verses. We go into John. We would have about 10 to 20 more verses. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Hebrews 2, 6. Revelation 1, 13, Revelation 14, 14. You say, Kirk, why Why are you telling If you want that full list, we'll give it to you when we're done. Why? Why is that important? It's very important. I want you to understand, because there were many references, Jesus himself sometimes referring to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Because he came according to the prophecies. What do we see? It was the gospel that was prophesied beforehand, and they knew that when he said, I am the Son of Man, that it was in reference to what Daniel said in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, that Jesus was claiming himself to be the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so we see this. It, It points to his... Coming to this earth, which we know was through a virgin. He was born into the line of David. and We see that this son of man was one of many references to his messianic authority. He was Christ, the Messiah. So please understand that when you see the term in Scripture, the son of man, it's just not a flippant term that you ought to just go, oh, that's neat, and not know why it says it. It says it because usually when Jesus was using that term or when others used that about him, it was to point to his fulfillment as Messiah. So we see this. The next thing we see, Paul told us, he says, as to uh, regarding his, who, as to human, his human nature was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with the power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We see not only was Jesus the Son of Man, but we see that he was the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, I want you to understand something. This is not saying that God found a wife and that they had intercourse and had a baby. Okay, That's not pointing to that at all. It's not saying that, that God, because you got some weirdos who, who try to say this, that, that God had some kind of relationship with Mary. Uh, the relationship that God had with Mary was called grace, and she found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It was his vessel by his choice. And what he did is he sovereignly chose her to bring the Messiah into the world. And so we see this, that we're not talking about some kind of goofy relationship that that happened. And and a lot of people try to make things up about this and throw people into all sorts of confusion. Um, In the true sense of the word, Jesus being the Son of God is a reference to the fact that though he was here and he manifested himself as a human, he is and always will be the son of God, which represents the second part of God's triune authority, the Trinity. And so understand that um, he, he is God's son as to his eternal nature in defining him as the second part of the Trinity. He always has been and he always will be the son of God as far as that function is concerned. So understand that Jesus was the Son of God in eternity past. Before he ever revealed himself as Jesus Christ, the human, the Son of Man, he was the Son of God and always will be the Son of God, that second part of the Trinity. So please understand when we see that, the term Son of God, even though uh, you can't hardly get through the Scriptures without seeing especially the New Testament, don't be thrown off by it. Understand this, he has two titles, Son of Man and Son of God, so that you can understand he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And keep it that simple. Don't confuse yourself and don't let all sorts of false teaching come in. Uh, he always has been the Son of God. He always will be the Son of God. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel speaking to Mary, it says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's pretty interesting that the angel let Mary know that you are going to bear eternal Son of God from your womb. And what an amazing thing. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Watch this. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? Now, I I want to bring you to speed here. This is in Matthew chapter 16. If you got the Matthew references that we went through, he's already referred to himself as the Son of Man many times, but he's asking his disciples a more intimate question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And in verse 14 says, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he turns and he says, but what about you, he asks. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, of course, spoke up and answered, You are the Messiah. Well, good job, Peter. I told you that when I referred to myself as the Son of Man. I told you a moment ago those terms hand in hand. You are the Messiah. But Peter recognized more, didn't he? He says this, The Son of the Living God. Now, Don't miss that in Scripture, a very important thing for you to notice. He distinguished him as the Messiah, and he also distinguished him as the eternal Son of God. Now watch what Jesus says. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What an amazing thing. Peter says, You're the Messiah. Yeah, I just told you that. Peter continued to speak and said, but you're also the son of the living God. Those are two distinct terms so that you can understand that Jesus truly was the God-man. Fully God, fully man. The son of man and the eternal son of God. Son of God references for you. If you want to write a few of these down. If you don't, you can get these notes when we're done. Matthew 4.3. Matthew 4, 6, 8, 29, 14, 33, 26, 63, 27, 40, 27, 43, 27, 54, 1, 1. How can it be that in the same gospel accounts they refer to Jesus as both the Son of Man and the Son of God? Could it be that he was both fully human? He was both fully deity, the Son of God. Mark 1, 1. Mark 3, 11. Mark 15, 39, Luke one thirty five, Luke 3, 38, Luke 4, 3, Luke 4, 9, Luke 4, 41, Luke 27, 70, John one thirty four, John one forty nine. 49. They aren't even trying to keep up anymore. John 5, 25, John eleven twenty seven, 27, John 19, 7, John 20, 31, Acts 9, 20. And we can go to Romans 1. We saw it. Romans 1, 4, 2 Corinthians 1, 19, Galatians 2, 20. Ephesians 4:13, Hebrews 4:14, 4, Hebrews 6:6, 6, 6, Hebrews 7:3, Hebrews 10:29, First John 3:8, First John 4:15, First John 5:5, 5, First 5, 5, John 5:10, 5:12, 5:13, First John 5:20, and then in the Revelation, chapter two, verse eighteen, we see that Jesus was fully man, fully God, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He came to fulfill the messianic prophecies that Daniel and many of the prophets referenced, and he came as Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, came to this earth to rescue men from their sin. What a privilege, what a beautiful thing for us to see in Scripture. Most of the time, we would read past those two phrases and just go, hmm, and keep on reading. So we see that he was the Son of Man, by the references in Scripture, the Son of God proven by His holy life. That's what Paul said. Paul said there in the verse that we're looking at today, that in verse 3 regarding His Son who as to His human nature was a descendant of David. We know this. We can trace His lineage all the way back, His human nature, all the way back to the throne of David and then some. We see that Jesus will be the one who sits on the everlasting throne of David. Verse 4, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He said he proved that he was more than just the son of man, but that he was the son of God. And he proved this by his holy life. He proved this by his power over death through his resurrection. Let me tell you this, if Jesus wouldn't have walked out of that tomb, we could have never made the claim that he was the son of God because he did not have power over over life and death, but yet he proved that he was truly the Son of God when he walked out of that tomb, that resurrection morning. It's proven by the scriptures that declare his position as the Son of God over and over and over again. He's declared to be the Son of God. It was proven by the testimony of God. Think about this. You don't believe that he was the Son of God? Well, let's just ask the Father. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 um, many of you remember it. He was being baptized. Jesus was being baptized by John, and a voice from heaven said, "What? This is my son." So, of all the stuff that we've talked about tonight, doesn't confirm that he was the son of God? Maybe God can confirm that for you because He spoke there at His baptism. and said, "This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased." And so, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth to save sinners like you and sinners like me. That is the gospel personified. He is the anointed Savior. We see this as Paul writes. He he talks about Jesus' human side, his lineage from David. He then talks about his lineage from the throne of God, that he is truly the Son of God declared by his holiness and the resurrection from the dead that we all know to be true. But he goes on and he refers to a couple more things in these two verses that I don't want you to miss. And, and I know that we're Tearing these verses down in small chunks, but there's so much here. So pay attention to what he says. He said he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we usually in church, we just read that and we say, yeah, amen. Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to break that down for you, what Paul's really saying here. Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. So there's three things that we need to consider in that title that oftentimes we just read the title and think that there's just one thing, right? There's three things to consider, and I want you to consider those things, that he was the anointed Savior. We saw that he was the Son of Man, that he he is the Son of God, but he is the anointed Savior. Did you know this, the word Jesus is a compound word, and it means this, Jehovah saves. Going back to what Paul said last week, it is the gospel of God. This is Jehovah's gospel. This is God's plan to save sinful man for his glory. So we look at this and we see that even in the name Jesus, Jehovah saves. So he says, Jehovah saves the Christ. What does the Christ mean? Don't forget this. Write this down. The anointed one, the Messiah. So he says, Jehovah saves the anointed one, or the Messiah, because the anointed one and the Messiah are parallel terms, synonyms. And then he goes on and he throws this one in there. The Lord. That means this, he was not only the anointed Savior, he was the sovereign Lord of all. The sovereign Lord, according to the many scriptures that we have looked at today. Paul, in just that title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Christ, and then he goes on and he says, our Lord. That's for all the people who think that Jesus can be Savior and not be Lord. That defies his title. He says, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior, Jehovah saves. And then in the rest of that term, our Lord, he points to his sovereign lordship. So when people tell you, well, Jesus is my Savior, but it was later on that he became my Lord, that is not biblical. It erases a part of Jesus' title from the equation that the Apostle Paul gives him here as he outlines the person of the gospel as he personifies the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Jesus, Jehovah saves, the Christ, the anointed one who is the Lord. So what does that mean? Jesus is the Savior. Of sinners. He is the anointed one, the Messiah that was promised of old. And he is the sovereign Lord of all. You don't get to dissect him in whichever part you like or don't like. He's all three, all at the same time. Don't ever forget that. So, moving along, we've seen the gospel prophesied, the gospel of the Old Testament. We've seen the gospel personified through the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man. Fully God, fully man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Anointed Savior, the Sovereign Lord of all. And then we see this: the gospel produces. Verse five. We're going to continue to read here in Romans through Him. Again, that's referencing Jesus. And for His name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Pay attention to this because He's already covered what we've read so far in His opening statements, that he was called to present the gospel to the Gentiles. But we see this, to the obedience that comes from faith. I want you to see what the true gospel, because that's what we're talking about tonight, the one true gospel, the one true gospel that was prophesied beforehand, we covered that, the one true gospel that was personified by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, It will produce something. Now I want you to see that. It produces obedience through faith. Regeneration, if a person is truly regenerated, meaning that they have been made alive in Christ while they were dead in their sin. I told you everything that we talked the five weeks before we got to Romans was important that we understand so that when we get to Romans, we understand what's happening now. So the dead were made alive through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And in that, he is going to produce obedient faith. Obedient faith. It is obedience that comes through faith in Jesus Christ that Paul is talking about here. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit will immediately and continually move our lives as born-again believers by faith into obedient acts for God. We will learn by the power of the Holy Spirit through sanctification, we will learn to be obedient people. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher and writer, said this, he said, to, to obey God is not so much our duty as our privilege. It's not so much our duty as our privilege, I want you to understand something. We don't obey God to gain God's approval. Paul writing here says that it's a little different. It's, it's an obedience that comes from faith. Why? Because he's about to teach many in the church that it's not about being obedient to the letter of the law and having that burden, having that weight on you to try to gain God's approval. But it's about the fact that now, through faith in Christ alone, you have God's approval, and those who are approved by God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, pay attention, watch me, will have obedience in their life to the Word of God. So, we look at this, um, and we see that many people would try to discredit this. In fact, there is a false teaching that's been around forever called antinomianism antinomianism, and so what that means is no moral laws um, does God ever expect us uh, to live out or to obey. Now, how many of you know that's wrong? Uh, Right, some of you say, "Well, well, I don't know, I'm saved by grace through faith. I know you're saved by grace through faith. We're not talking about saved by grace through faith. We're talking about faith that produces obedience. So understand something. You don't get to throw out the Ten Commandments. How many of you understand that's still God's standard? An antinomian will say, "Well, you don't have to live by the Ten Commandments. You can live any way that you want to live, and uh, grace will do its thing, and in the end, it'll all work out." Right? I, I hope that those of you who are here have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you realize, no, that's not the case. Since I was born again, man, His Spirit is moving me constantly toward obedience and constantly. Away from the sin of my flesh, and what a privilege it is when I see God change me from what I used to be into what I am now—a vessel for His glory and His praise. And so we are called to be obedient through faith. Um, please don't miss that in the gospel, because we, we don't see that nowadays. We see a, a weak gospel that that is proclaimed that it's just easy believism and cheap grace. And then when you have it, you're on your way to heaven. So live any way that you want to live. That's the gospel that that Paul said, shall we sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. We should not sin so that grace may abound. We We should be excited about the fact that before Christ, we couldn't be obedient to the commands of God. But in Christ, we now have the privilege of His Spirit living in us, leading us into obedience that comes from faith. That obedience started when you turned to Christ in repentance, when the Spirit awakened you, and regenerated you, that obedience was followed by faith. We know this, and I don't care what order you put it in. He regenerated you, and then faith and belief came in, and repentance quickly followed, right? Remember remember when you repented that day? You, Because I promise you this, if you didn't repent from your sin, you didn't get saved. Because Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And like I've said before, Jesus still holds a little weight with this preacher. I believe what he says, and I believe he said it, and I believe he meant it. And so when we look at this, when we repented, it was because God, through his power by his Holy Spirit, regenerated us to the point where we could repent. Why? Because we couldn't repent before then, because we didn't seek after God, because there's none righteous, no, not one. We didn't have the power to repent. Thankfully, by his grace, he did a work in and through us. And so many people will claim that obedience is not important any longer. That is false teaching. It goes all the way back to the heresy of antinomianism. And says you don't you don't God doesn't require that you live any kind of obedience or any kind of moral law. That is not true. It's still wrong to have idols, it's still wrong to use the Lord's name in vain, it's still sin when you put any God before him, little G God, it is still sin when you commit adultery, it is still sin when you look at a woman in lust. Jesus himself confirmed this, then you've committed adultery in your heart already. It is still a sin to steal. And to lie and to covet, right? Well, I'm just living the American dream. No, you're coveting. You're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Be content with what you have because godliness with contentment, Paul said, is great gain. So when we look at this, we see obedience from faith in Christ alone, made possible only in Christ. That's why it was so important that when we talked about solo fide, the fact that it is faith alone through soli Christus, which is Christ alone. We saw the importance of that before we ever got to this because it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone that we can now be obedient in that faith which God has called us to live. So we see it's obedient faith um, in Christ alone, but it's obedient faith for God's glory. Obedient faith for God's glory, made possible for His glory. It is by grace that you can be obedient and be a vessel of God's glory. How many of you, when you were in your sin, brought God glory with your life? How many of you in your obedience that comes through faith, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, are you now bringing glory to God in your life? That's the way it works. So we see obedience as that privilege that he gave to us by faith. We now get to live for God. It's not a burden. If you're truly born again here today, you get to because you've been honest with yourself about where you used to live, and you get to live in this new life that brings God glory by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. So we see it's obedient faith for all people. Uh, he was making that very clear. It's for all people. He wants you to know, uh, as as he writes here, that um, in verse uh, 5, we're in verse 5, right, still? Yeah. Uh, Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. So it's for all people. Uh, It was very clear already in Scripture that it was first for the Jew, as Jesus says, and then for the Gentile. Paul's saying it's now for everyone because in, in biblical times, in the biblical distinction, you were either Jew or you were everything else, which was a Gentile. So Paul's making it very clear that this faith that leads to obedience through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's for all, the Jews and the Gentiles. It is obedient faith, and it is the only true faith. I want to show you something. I want you to, to understand why Paul is saying that this is um, the faith that leads us to obedience um, or obedience that comes from faith, however you want to word that. I want you to see he's saying this in reference to the gospel so that the church will know that That the true gospel will contain obedience. So that you can't claim to have Jesus but live like you used to live. That obedient, true faith is what marks Christians distinctly. James chapter 2. We know what James says about faith without works. What does he say? He says, you foolish person. You want evidence that faith without works or deeds is dead or useless. He's talking to them. Go back and read that chapter of James. He's saying one person says he has faith and that doesn't hold water. The only thing that holds water is the person who says that he has faith and he backs it up with the things that he does, those obedient acts of righteousness that Christ is doing in and through you by his Spirit. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says it like this, not everyone who says to me in verse 21, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to understand something here. Jesus is preaching a faith that leads to obedience. It is an obedient faith, or it's not a gospel faith. Paul's making that very clear in the beginning of this letter. We're we're in verse five, and he's wanting people to know this gospel because he's still talking about the gospel. The true gospel is a gospel of obedience. And if it's not obedient faith, it's not the true gospel. Please understand that. The antinomianistic gospel that you don't have to follow God's word or obey His commands, um, that is garbage. By His grace and in Christ and through faith in Christ, we now get to obey the Father, bringing Him glory with our lives. And so, John chapter 14 Jesus himself said it best. Verse 15, if you love me, what? If you obey my commands. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? You know what the problem is in the modern church? We don't really love Jesus. We like what he could potentially bring to us. But we don't really love him. And not, not with the love of that the gospel proclaims not with the love that we see in the lives of the apostles not that obedient love that comes from true faith in Jesus Christ. So when a person is truly saved, they're going to obey Christ, right? Christ made it simple. So before you get all caught up do I, man, do I have to obey 613 commands from the law? No, you don't. You're a Gentile. Those commands are not for you, but Jesus simplified it. Are you ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this sums up the law and the prophets. What did Jesus do? He made it easy for the Gentiles. Now watch this. If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, am I going to place any other gods before him? No. Did I just keep a commandment? Huh? If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, am I going to bow down to idols? Huh? No, because the moment that I do, I'm going to be convicted because I'm truly his. I'm going to have that inward desire to walk in obedience. What about this? If I love my neighbor as myself, am I going to commit adultery with his wife? Am I going to murder him? Am I going to covet his things? Are we fulfilling the commands of the Lord in the New Testament through the faith that comes by the gospel? Answer the question. Yes, it is expected of us. So he's letting us know that that this is the gospel that produces obedience. A gospel that doesn't produce obedience from the faith that we claim to have, write this down, is not the true gospel. Not the true gospel. We're talking about the true gospel tonight. Let's move on. We've seen... The gospel prophesied to the gospel personified through Jesus Christ. The gospel produces obedient faith through the regenerating of the Holy Spirit, the change that he brings in us. Then we see the gospel people. Gospel people, verse 6. We're going to get to 7 tonight. Can you believe it? And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel people. They are a called people. He said you also are among those that are called, that were called is a word that means appointed. And in this reference, we can see this as appointed by God. They are a chosen people called from all men, both Jew and Gentile. Paul is making that claim here early on so that you understand uh, that his duty is to be the apostle to the Gentiles, as he's already let us know. But there is a chosen group of people who were called from all people. Romans 15. Verse 8, all the way to verse 12, it says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. He's going back to prophecy. Remember, this is the gospel that was told beforehand by the prophets and by the types of the Old Testament. He says, I will sing the praises of your name. Verse ten again, it says, "Rejoice, you Gentiles, with His people." And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles! All, let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, "The root of Jesse will spring up." What in the world is that talking about? The root of Jesse? What in the? Oh, the Son of Man who came from the line of David. It just so happens that Jesse was David's father. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and He's referring back to the Old Testament about this. He says, "The root of Jesse will spring up." one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Aren't you thankful today that he extended grace and mercy through Jesus Christ to the Gentiles? Man, I know I am. So we see that because of what Christ has done, we have a gospel people. They are called to receive salvation. They are called to receive forgiveness. They are chosen people belonging to Jesus Christ, called out to be separate from this world. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, but you are a chosen people. He's referring to the believers. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you think if, 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 if we weren't required to be obedient and bring God glory through our lives that He could refer to us as a holy nation that's going to be set apart? No, He wants to set us apart through obedience, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see the chosen people belonging to Jesus who were called out to be separate from the world. And then we see a changed people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. I want you to pay attention. You were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. It would be a sad thing if it ended there, wouldn't it? Verse 13 goes on, and I'm thankful for that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ being the anointed one, the Messiah. It's not just Jesus' last name. Don't think that. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm thankful that we are a changed people, once alienated from God, far away. Without hope, without God, that text just said. But now we've been brought near. I love that it doesn't say we came near. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see the gospel people, the called, appointed, and chosen people of God. The true gospel will have those people. And then we see the last thing, the gospel position. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. If, if you're not a shouter, it's okay. Just try and see if maybe God would develop you into a shouter. Because we're going to read a term right here that I am amazed that God would ever reference me or any of you with this term. Watch what he says here in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God, I'm still amazed that he would even love me. But to all in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Called to be saints, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Called to be saints. Now, you know, uh, we've lost so much in understanding that meaning uh, through Catholicism, through sports teams, uh, through people who use that word and they don't really understand the magnitude of that word they they see somebody who's a decent Oh, he's a saint, they're a decent person, they're a saint it's so much more than that and and, and I'm going to leave you with that tonight, those of you who are born again Paul is going to tell you here and has told you, you are a saint Uh, you don't have to wait until uh, Catholicism recognizes you and puts you on a medallion or a statue he's talking to the church of the living God and he's saying you are saints, now let's talk about that word real quick before we get out of here That is a word, and it means in the Greek, it is a word in the Greek, excuse me, it is hagios, hagios in the Greek, and if you're spelling that in the English, it is H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. Here's what that word means. It means sacred, pure, morally blameless, ceremonially, ceremonially consecrated, a most holy That is, I I told you back when we talked about uh, imputed righteousness and justification by faith alone I told you that we have been made perfect through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and Paul is referring to those in the church at Rome and he calls them all not, not somebody who was good in the church doing all the right things. He's calling all the believers saints, holy, sacred, pure, morally blameless, ceremonially consecrated. It appears 45 times in the New Testament the word saint or saints. Pay attention. All 45 times that we see it in the NIV, we see this, that it is, Always, always referring to the true born again believers. It's never, uh, it's never in reference to some early church father who somebody deemed as a saint. It is always referring to the general body of the church, the born again believers. God sees us through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which was imputed to us His righteousness. Through that sacrifice, He sees us as morally pure, blameless, ceremonially consecrated, clean before God. And he calls us that in this one little word that most of the time we just read over, Haggaios, saints. How amazing is that? He says that these saints are loved by God. Loved by God. I can tell you this right now, I don't deserve the love of God. But God loves his saints, and he loves his saints enough that he sent his only begotten Son to this earth to die for them, to redeem them from their sin. He loves us to the point that the Son of God, who was also the Son of Man, bore our wrath that we deserved, took our beating, took all the mockery that we deserved, and all the shame that belonged to us. He did all of that so that he could then turn around and call us saints, holy, morally blameless. God loved us so much that when we couldn't come to him because we were not holy, he in his holiness came to us and offered a holy sacrifice so that we would be made holy and now we can stand in the presence of God as saints, holy before God. Why? Because he loved us. Then he called us as saints to be holy. Then we see this. He says grace and peace to you. To all you saints, grace and peace to you. Anybody here deserve grace and peace? Remember before Christ when there was only enmity and hostility? There was no peace in your life. It was sin, enmity toward God, and hostility. Yet he offers grace and peace to those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ through the great gospel of God that Paul was proclaiming here. And he offers us grace and peace, and he lets us know that that grace and peace, once again, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the saints, the saints, those who are positionally saints, we holy, perfect, through justification. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are progressively saints. Did you know that? We're not only positionally saints. We're also progressively saints. We're being made holy through the sanctification of His Spirit living in us. Watch what Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says. It says, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made perfect. Holy, don't you love that? We've been made perfect past tense, and we're being made holy present tense. So, we are perfect because of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, positionally, and we are being in our humanity being made perfect through the act of holiness that the Holy Spirit is bringing in our life through obedience to the word of God, and God is, like he said, raising up for himself a chosen, holy, royal priesthood. And we get to be a part of that because of this glorious gospel, the one true gospel. So My prayer is this, that through these first seven verses, and I know in the first seven verses we have covered a ton of. My prayer is this, through these first seven verses that we see the gospel more clearly and that in seeing it more clearly, that you live for God's glory through that same gospel every day of your life, clinging to that and that alone, because it is the only gospel that saves sinners like us. Amen. Amen.